podcast ain't played nobody, Bill. We can't die. We can be temporarily delayed. That's it. Man. We're the, the wherewithal of middle-aged fathers. God. Can't kill me. I don't need sleep. I haven't, I haven't needed sleep in four years. Um, Here, here's what I'm doing to remind myself that it really it could be a lot worse. What, what are your two least favorite cold symptoms? Like, what are the two that just wreck you the most? Uh, sore throat, mm-hmm. which I don't have at the moment. Here, let's knock on, knock it on wood. And um, <laughs> ex- like extreme congestion pressure, I guess. Okay. Yeah, the ears. Ears are number one. If if my ears are, it's like a wind tunnel. Um, yeah. And then sore throat is too. If, like I have those two, I really can't concentrate. Like especially the ears thing. Uh, I do not have that. My basically from my the top of my head to my esophagus, I am fine. Mm, gross. And that that has saved me. That has saved me this week, other than not sleeping very much. Uh, but this is like we were talking about slow moving storms with Sean Breslin the other day. This is basically. Uh, the wife and kid both got, got this thing. It's basically, it just parks itself in your lungs for two weeks mm-hmm. and then just doesn't move. You cough and then you get hot and that's it. Those are the only two symptoms. It's wrecked me all the same. I did Wharton Moneyball this morning with that like congestion head, medicine head vibe, which is, if those of you who don't know on SiriusXM, Wharton Moneyball is like the, Love it's them. the channel for bills. And uh, I'm not a bill, as I've tweeted and made that joke several times, I failed business calculus too at Ole Miss three times. Not because I don't know the math or couldn't do it, but like one time I realized the math was really hard and didn't study enough. And I made, uh, I was just short of making a C, I made a D. So then you have to retake it because you had needed a C or something. I can't remember what it was. Then the next two times I basically just quit going. But that's, so that's, that's my dedication to math. And then to go on that show, they're so cool about it though. Like they're so chill and because they, they want my perspective as someone who like works with you and then translates and all this. Anyways, I was with a bunch of smart people. They literally lost a co-host for my segment because they had to go teach at Wharton. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Do you realize like th- that's not really my normal radio experience? <laughs> this is podcast ain't played nobody. It's a really terrible intro for a college football marriage of numbers and words. Uh, we are going to play a little jazz today because um, I traveled again for an upcoming feature that should be out in two weeks. Um, that threw us off. Technical difficulties threw us off. We both got sick, independent of one another. We have not shared the same space since Labor Day weekend. Uh, so hold your jokes. The um, So here's what we're going to do, Bill. This We're going to do this episode, and it's going to be essentially a cleanup of all of our charity questions. We have a lot of segments to get to, a lot of people to talk to. Talk Well, a lot of people have paid us to talk about a lot of particular things. We are then going to, the next episode you get will be your traditional tasting menu preview of week five. Five? Yes. Five sounds right. Yeah. Yep. Jesus. Bill. Five? <sighs> yep. All right. I did the spiel. We're going to jump right into it. You ready? Mm-hmm. We have a lot of smart listeners. I don't understand what the appeal of this program is to them, but whatever. You ready? Sure. Okay, Jim Francisco bought an entire segment. And Jim's segment, I think, probably encapsulates the best of the charity drive, which, by the way, has now closed. Thank you. And those of you who are annoyed by it, uh, grow a heart. And second, uh, your normal ass PAPNs will be back in circulation soon. So um, he sent over his GoFundMe invite. He said, uh, as both a leukemia survivor and an economist who crunches college football numbers, this was kind of the perfect charitable (laughs) giving opportunity for me. Well, congratulations on being a leukemia survivor. Man, that is awesome. Yeah. if you'll indulge me, I'd like for Bill. See, and this is the thing. They always pay, and they're just like, hey, I want to talk to your friend. Bullshit. Um, I'd like for Bill to muse a bit about some potential issues in the modeling of strength of schedule. He also wants to put in here, he's an Auburn fan. 
full disclosure, I'm a lifelong <laughs> barner. I'm a lifelong, he even calls himself a barner. I really like Jim. I'm a lifelong barner, so the bitterness <coughs> that comes from being an Auburn fan influences these questions. I think they're valid nonetheless. This isn't to whine about S&P, which is the best such system in the business, though I think you'd raise more money for the charity if you offered to make your numbers stop hating the team of the fan base that donates the most. That's kind of funny. Like combine the, the EDSBS <laughs> charity with a, a system of ratings. Yeah. I know. The problem, of course, then Michigan would be number one every gym. year. That's why we're not doing that, Jim, because Michigan will find a way. Like a disease. One, S&P, um, all right, here's what he'd like to bring up with you. We're just going to okay. kind of go as, as yeah, best we can in this segment. Because Jim's real smart. He has a lot of smart questions, and I'm just going to kind of wade through this. S&P seems to account for scheduling along the lines of similar metrics like the FPI, which adds the ratings of the opponents and adjusts for game locations. <coughs> uh, or, or Sagarin, which averages them. Is that correct? If not, how do you do it? Bill, explain. <laughs> yeah, so um, you, know, you get a rating that could be presented in any form but basically like it's it's uh well after averaging it together all the different things i average together uh you get a rating and then it it equals out to like you know the 95.9 percentile or 42.9 or 58 or whatever um what i do is i then slap that onto the uh, like that so that, you know, if it's a percentiles, we're talking about bell curves where most of the teams are in the middle uh, within a standard deviation of each other. And, and Alabama is in the 99th percentile always. Um, and so what I do then is I apply where you fall on that uh, on the on the bell curve to to where that would apply on the scoring curve, like the, the difference in average margins basically over time. Uh, like so where a really, really good team is going to end up like plus 30 something in um, like the really, really good teams will end up in the, you know, plus thirties because they're 30%, basically 30, 30 points higher than the the 50th percentile is what that comes down to. So I think what he's asking for is picks like uh, FPI adds the ratings of the opponents and adjusts for game locations. I mean, that's basically what I do. You now have an adjusted scoring average. So the team a is, plus 20 and team B is plus 15, then 20 minus 15 is team A would be favored by five on a neutral field, throwing two and a half points for home field advantage. And there you go. There's your, there's your score. All right, Bill. Um, so seems, if that's what he's asking, I think it is, then yeah. It seems that that makes a linear linearity assumption. That's not true. No, there are some problems with that in that it, a touchdowns no. difference between say Southern Miss and Liberty, two of Auburn's lesser opponents, is a difference in win probability from 98% to 96%. Yes. Whereas a similar difference in the middle of the schedule is a difference in win probability of 89% versus Arkansas and 79% versus Texas A&M and 47% versus Washington and 34% versus Alabama. And then he puts in parentheses, of course, these numbers may be different now. That's from the preseason. Is there a way to adjust and compare schedules that addresses that nonlinearity? No, I, I addressed linearity by making it nonlinear because that made everything better. Um, yeah, I, I mean, we're, we're if you're 42 per points better than your opponent, mm -hmm. you're going to have a 96 or whatever percent uh, win probability. If you're 49, you can't go much higher than 96, so you're only going to go up a little bit more. Uh, as you get closer to those edges, again, we're talking bell curves here. Everything, Most everything is in the middle, and the things on the edges, on the, on the extremes, uh, you, you just can't really you, – you, yeah, you, you can't be much more likely to beat Southern Miss than you are Liberty or whatever, or, or Liberty than Southern Miss, because it, you're already almost 100% likely to beat them. So yeah, on the on those per, on those the perimeter, you're going to have issues like that. And in the middle, a seven point, if you're seven points better on average than Texas A&M, um, 
you know, the seven points is one play. And so that's really not going to, you know, what, what it's saying is your one play, this is approximately what it's saying. This is not precisely what it's saying. But if you're seven points better, like let's, let's say that means you're one play better than Texas A&M, but you're 12 plays better than Liberty or 14 plays better than Southern Miss. One, one play then can make a humongous advantage, uh, a humongous difference in the Texas A&M game, but not the Liberty or Southern Miss games. I hope that makes sense. But I mean, yeah, in the middle, there's going to be a mu- one touchdown means much, much, much much, much more uh, than it does against Liberty. I got more for you. Beyond some threshold of badness, does quality, doesn't quality of opponent cease to be meaningful? E.g. Auburn well, yeah, got dinged. That's why there's barely any difference between Southern Miss and Liberty in the win percentage, or win probabilities. But go Auburn ahead. got dinged for playing Alabama State. Didn't get dinged. Team. Didn't get okay, dinged. Didn't get dinged. Okay. But is there really an appreciable difference between playing a bad FCS team and an average yes. one from the perspective of a very good to elite yes. FBS team? Yes. Uh, he has in parentheses Auburn was preseason uh, top five or six per S&P this seems to exacerbate the issue I described in number two but it makes it diff- it makes the bottom of the schedule count more than the top in ways no. that perhaps aren't predictive no um, they didn't Fight. get dinged for playing Alabama State they got dinged for dicking around for a quarter against Alabama State when Alabama State is a really <laughs> really, really 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 bad team uh, okay. they like went three and out in the first possession they, I mean they ended up winning by a, a metric crap ton of course but that first quarter against a team that is the, how did I put it on Twitter this, this, uh, this saddened Georgia State fans because I used them as the example but like the difference between Alabama State and like a Samford is the uh-huh. difference between like a Georgia State uh-huh. and an Arkansas like uh-huh. or, or, or whatever some team in the middle Alabama State's really bad and they're at the very bottom of FCS and so a team at the very top of FBS should handle them just fine but Al- Auburn handled a bottom tier FCS team worse than a whole lot of middle tier FBS teams did. Yes, that, I mean, it, it probably made a, a too big of a difference because it was Auburn's second game of the year. Um, and as they play more, that'll kind of just filter out into the background. But that they didn't get dinged for playing a bad team. They got dinged for not treating a terrible team like a terrible team for a little while before well, they got it going. Let me pause for a second because this is this is the essence of the podcast. I say this occasionally, but I like to identify it when it happens because if you don't have an identity and you don't have that like that waypoint or that anchor, then you you kind of lose calibration on what should we be talking about on this show? What what's the point of us doing this? For all we know, and and I and I'm basing this as off of my personal experience as a reporter for years in college football. There's a reason why they dicked around against Alabama State that we don't know. And it wasn't just, it was not simply, we're going to go out and apply 110% max effort just like we did against Washington on these drives. And we failed to do that. We failed to accomplish X against Alabama State. For all we know, they could have purposefully done something where, (coughs) hey, this is Alabama State. We want to try this. We want to try this package in the playbook, or we want to try these set of plays, or, or this, or this, or this. Because it is Alabama State. We want to come out and do this look, or we're showing something for the future, or we're not showing something for the future, or we're going to sub out personnel, or we're not going to, you know what, this kid was a, a dick in practice this week, so we're specifically going to not do what we normally would with him because we can afford to do that against Alabama State. There's myriad reasons mm-hmm. why this could have happened that no matter what Bill does forever, and he will always tweak S&P Plus, and always tinker with the machine that the machine can't see. And that's the point of this thing, is that you can simultaneously acknowledge there are things the machine will never see without saying, you know what, I don't believe in stats, (laughs) or I don't believe in analytics, which is just, it's become this super dumb binary 
where we want to think everything can be predicted by numbers or we, or we strive for that, which is a foolish endeavor. And that, or simultaneously we reject all of it and be like, man, you ain't never been out there in a field. You don't know. A number can't tell you, you know, that dumb Luddite way of thinking. It's always in the middle. It's always a combination of the two. And this is a great example in which, you know what? The numbers are right. You're right. If you're Auburn, you should you should come out mm-hmm. like a war machine on every drive against Alabama State, right? But right, you, I mean the best teams there are the might ones be that a do reason it very... why you didn't. Right, and the... we're talking about the difference between a very good team and a top team, and the top teams are more, are much more likely to have laid waste to a bad opponent from the very start and not messed around for a little bit. But let's put it okay. So there have been twelve. Uh, games this year against truly bottom tier FCS teams. I break the FCS teams into tiers, uh, and you know, because I can't say you know against Alabama State, it's specifically this. I want to get to a point of of getting like basically having S and P plus rankings for FCS teams, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, and that's quite quite a bit on me. I left time for it, but anyway, bottoms uh, bottom tier FCS teams have played twelve games against the FBS this year. This includes Auburn and Miami. It also includes UAB and Akron and Buffalo. Buffalo and Cincinnati and uh, Texas State even, the average score of those games has been 58 to 8. So, I mean, Auburn, you know, not that I use just scoring margin and that's it, but Auburn won their game by 54 points instead of the average of 50. That's so good. They're better than average, Mm -hmm. uh, but they weren't top five level. Miami beat beat theirs uh, by 77, even though they kind of also messed around a little bit, so they didn't get a ton of credit for that. But like Western Michigan beat their bottom tier FCS team by 68 points. Um, Cincinnati by 56, Houston by 56, Toledo by 63. So beating, winning by 54 points. I know, like I'm, I'm, I'm using scoring margin because it's easy. I, you know, obviously we don't know what happens in garbage time and all this stuff. So I don't want to pretend like blah 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 blah. But bottom line is they only played like a good team would play against Alabama State and not a great team. And so they got a little bit of punishment for that. Uh, and by the way, uh, they're still 13th in S and P plus. <laughs> so if they can, t- if they play play like a top 10 team they will end up in the top 10 uh let's let's uh get to the last part of jim's question you ready i'm just going to read this whole thing is there a way to model scheduling that allows for different or mixed objective functions i suspect that the schedule that maximizes expected wins may not for all teams be the same as the one that maximizes the probability of finishing undefeated or with only one loss this can be important to teams that hope to make the playoff. To take an extreme example, suppose a top 25 FBS team had a schedule that featured 11 games against SWAC opponents and a 12th game against the New England Patriots. They suck right now. So you're wrong, Jim. Yeah, I'm uh, sure it'll stay that way too. Uh, just kill me. NFL. Uh, that's likely to generate more expected wins than, say, Alabama's schedule this year. But the tide is more likely to go undefeated. That's an extreme example, but to a lesser degree, that issue isn't uncommon. To circle back to the Auburn bitterness, oh, we know you're there, Jim. I'm willing to buy that Auburn's schedule in 2004 from a win-max perspective was weaker than USC's or OU's. I, you know, off the top of my head, I wouldn't agree with that, but I'd have to go look. No, it, it was. Okay. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. SEC? No? No, that was pre... That was pre-SEC chant SEC. So I'm a guy. Look, I'll text Tuberville. He'll jump your ass for that. But Auburn played more elite or at least very good opponents than the others did. LSU, UGA, UT twice. And remember when UTA was elite? <laughs> he mentioned Tennessee is good. 
Uh, thus, I think a respect, uh, uh, I think a reasonable case can be made that Auburn's 2004 schedule was the most difficult against which to go undefeated, which we did, just pointing that out. Auburn's was perceived as the weakest schedule, mostly because it tended to be bimodal. Auburn also played more games against horrible teams, but I'd argue that the discrepancy between that year's Houston and Louisiana Monroe was relatively trivial. Most models favor a, a more normally distributed schedule. In my opinion, this is the last part. Schools approach scheduling reflecting their different objectives going in. Some schools are looking to maximize their shot at a bowl eligibility, so while others aspire to more. So it seems more reasonable to account for that flexibility. This seems particularly relevant for the G5 schools looking to make the NY6 and certainly the playoff, which could realistically face something not totally unlike the Patriots example I gave earlier. Anyway, enjoy the show. I look forward to the discussion. Um, I'm going to put a cap on you because we have so much more to do. Give me a nice two and a half minute response to Jim, <laughs> who seems to like you and gave us money. Right. So be nice. Um. Well, I mean, I do wonder if he would say all these same things now, since there. This felt like an immediate reaction to the Alabama State thing. Um, this was written on September twelfth. Yeah. Uh, so, so that I'm sure was part of it. Um, and it was, you know, again, it was Look, man, this, is the most, this is the most educated response. This is the most educated, angry thing I've ever heard from an <laughs> Auburn fan. So give Jim some credit. Um, yeah. So, I mean, here's the, two and a half minutes. So I, <laughs> the overall S and P plus rating comes from, here is you know here here are the factors that matter. Here's the like the the game rating that you produced from the factors that matter and all their weights and blah 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 blah. blah. Based on uh, the opponent at hand, a normal team would have produced this against that opponent. You produce this, uh, you know, so you were zero point two better than average or whatever. It, it basically subtracts reality from expectation, um, and so it doesn't. I mean, I, I honestly, I don't know what else to say because it, it's yeah, like to use the 2004 example, um, Auburn. Like, I don't know how it would have played out exactly because I only have data through 05. But, um, but Auburn, like, if you had a few games that were pretty low win probability and a whole bunch in the 90s, um, that w it, you know, it would factor that it would grade you appropriately. It would, I mean, this is designed to make predictions. It's not designed to evaluate you. Um, and I, th I believe using just points scored and allowed Auburn was the third best of those three teams, but I don't, I don't really know what to say. Like, I don't think necessarily what he said applies because it isn't just a simple, um, Nothing is simple. Nothing is simple at all. I don't. I honestly don't know. I, I'm really struggling to to come up with a better answer here. I'm, I'm going to blame like the halls or something, but I, I don't. I I think this was overthought. I don't think that. <laughs> Man, help me out. I got nothing. I, I've. You're looking at me for math help. I, I know. Well, no, not math help. Just like words help. I don't like that. Was a whole lot of stuff to. But basically, I, I'm really comfortable with the way I evaluate schedules. Here's the deal. A ten thousand foot view. It's one of those things that we talk about may not be measurable because of what I will say this. Jim made a good point. There's so many different motivations yeah. and so many different factors that go into scheduling that it's really hard to flatten it out into a single metric. And I will say uh, one thing I will say that I agree with is that um, 
I, I do wish everybody had a properly distributed schedule because you end up sometimes with situations like Marshall that year, they were threatening to go undefeated with an absolute crap schedule. That wasn't totally their fault. A power team. I don't even remember which one had backed out on them as you know, happens to UCF like every freaking year and USF and all those. But, um, so it wasn't their fault, but it did make them hard, harder to evaluate because they had only played teams of a certain caliber. Whereas if everybody played, you know, three teams from the top quartile and three teams from the next and three teams from the next and three teams from the next, we'd have a pretty, a much more accurate view of, of whatever. But I mean, I have tweaked the, the, the way I adjust for a schedule 14 billion times, way too many times through the years to try to kind of uh, adjust for that. And I mean, I, I every time I make a tweak, I think it's slightly better than it was before, and and so I'm pretty comfortable with what I do in that regard. But there is something to be said for the evenness of a schedule. I think that's a totally fine, reasonable expectation, and I think that it's again, this is subjective, and we're trying to apply analytics to some highly subjective stuff sometimes, and this is the gray area in which we live. I think Jim encapsulates something that the podcast was built upon. Thank you for helping Kane so very, very much. Ooh, Bill Mad. Well, that was no, that was the peacemaking. I wasn't mad at all. That was the peacemaking thing. This helped. I hey, like. Man. I appreciate that he spent you, so much. That was awesome. You are always going to get challenged on this shit. That was never. Okay. That was not supposed to be sarcastic at all. I was happy he, he supported. Mm, hey man, shade. that was not on all me. Right. That was not on me at all. All right, robot. We got to go into hurry up because we had more people buy questions. Uh, the charity drive is closed, but we got a bunch. You ready? I don't know. You're going to think I'm being sarcastic. Oh, God, you're so grumpy. Matt DeVore. Hey, guys, I can't remember what the cutoff was going. Well, you cut off, whatever. Sitting in Autzen and watching Oregon collapse, the game itself didn't seem that weird because the Ducks kept doing just enough to make you think that they were going to pull it out until they did not. It was hard to make it out. Uh, it was hard to make out due to the <coughs> audio, but I was subjected to Jason Kirk recapping the game yesterday. <laughs> this is why this one got bumped to the front instead of full cast shade in it. Um, he mentioned the extreme weirdness that it was that was getting to a 100% win expectancy on ESPN site twice in the same game and still managing to lose. The box score, by contrast, looks fairly average. Morgan played a little better, but turned the ball over. So if you were playing bingo, I think you'd assume a close game. We would. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would certainly find it plausible that Stanford had won without knowing that the turnovers were as catastrophic as they actually were. So I'm curious to know what Bill and his numbers think about this game. What does Oregon's win expectancy look like? And is there anything statistically that tips the fact that it wasn't just Stanford winning the turnover battle, but exactly how severe those turnovers were that decided the game? Um... I'm not Bill, but um, statistically that tips the fact that it wasn't just Stanford winning the turnover battle. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's why we always look at, I mean, when we did the box score thing, the genesis of that was like, what do you look at and what do coaches look at? Like they look at turnovers right away. Right. Turnovers matter to them more than, than yardage does. Yeah, and, and it's hard. Like, okay, so the post-game win expectancy, that number we always talk about where I you know take the key stats, the same ones that go into S&P, but I use them a little differently here. Um, I toss them all up in the air, say, you know, you would have won this game X percent of the time. Based on full game stats, uh, Stanford's post-game win expectancy was 76%, and that's, that's designed to filter out, like, bounces or, you know, the, the uh, specific break here or there. So... Um, 
Like I'm trying to here. Here we go. Uh, so the five factors for that game, the full game, and I'll I'll I'll, I'll get to why I'm saying that in a second. Um, success rate: Stanford fifty percent, Oregon forty six percent. Scoring opportunities: Oregon had one more, uh, but Oregon, uh, but Stanford averaged uh, about a half point more per scoring opportunity, which obviously helped. Um, average field position: Stanford plus two and a half. So basically, uh, and then turnovers, of course, they. We're expected turnover margin was plus 1.2 for Stanford because they didn't fumble three times or whatever. Um, but they still, they were plus three in turnovers. So it still was, uh, you know, there was some luck there, but, uh, Oregon did still fumble, which put a lot into, uh, you know, into questions. So no, I mean, Oregon hadn't, they had taken advantage of their early opportunities and, um, they, they had built a lead and they, I'm betting if like, if I, I don't have a good way of doing this, but if I had basically, if I went in and just deleted every play, uh, starting with the CJ Verdell fumble and just pretended that, like that, that the play before it was the last play of the game, I, I'm assuming that the post game win expectancy at that point would have probably been slightly in, um, Oregon's favor, but it would have been in a toss-up fashion, which makes sense because the game was 31-28. Like, you know, that's that's one of those, like, even if Oregon had won, it would have been 31-28, not like the 31-7 we thought it was going to be midway through the third quarter. Um, so Stanford had come back. It wasn't the, – the fumble return touchdown obviously he helped, duh, but it was still um, a very statistically even game at that point. But basically, starting with that fumble, I mean um, – Stanford gets the ball back, throws two incomplete passes, then goes 16. The rest of their offensive plays for that game, 16-yard pass, 16-yard pass, 9-yard pass, 2-yard run, 23-yard pass. Um, so basically, you know, all but one of those plays, well, whatever. That was That's a very good success rate right there. That probably bumped them ahead of Oregon. And then Oregon's uh, offensive plays in overtime were incompletion, 15-yard pass, incompletion, 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 interception. There's no question that that was just enough plays to – to, to skew that um, uh, the success rate margin and all that. But so, yeah, I mean, like it was 76% because those last plays count. It would have probably, I assume, been like 50 to 60% for Oregon, which matches a 31-28 score, even if it included a, a return touchdown. Derek Burden. I'm a Kentucky fan. I've had season tickets for years, despite not living within five hours of Lexington. Let me just stop the email. Jesus. That's amazing. Good God, I live three hours from Lexington and I haven't, and I do this for a living and I haven't been to a college football game in Lexington in like, it's been a long time. I am in disbelief we might be legit good. I know Heisman voting is the opposite of analytic, but what types of stats and team record would it take for Benny Snell to get to New York for the Heisman ceremony? Thanks, Derek. Uh, Derek, thank you for your contribution. I can fill this one pretty easily. Um, the problems that face Benny Snell's Heisman campaign are as follows. Uh, one. You have a quarterback at Alabama that's going to be the front runner coming out of the Southeastern <laughs> Conference. That's not going to change. Two, you have the issue of Georgia. Three, you have a limited amount of marquee moments right now. Um, underdog stories usually aren't accompanied with Heisman candidacy. Um, however, here's what you need to happen to have a, even a puncher's chance. Uh, one, he's got to be consistent, so he can't have any kind of games where he's under 50 yards, under 60 yards, really even under like 70 yards. He's got to be dominant. He's got to be scoring in almost every single game. Um, your, your marquee moments almost have to come against Georgia because that's the best team on your schedule. Yeah. Play well even if you lose. Play well against Georgia. Play really, really well against Georgia. And I think he will because, I mean, Missouri was able to run the ball on Georgia pretty well, and, and Snell's better. I, I like Missouri's running backs, but Snell's better. Uh, 
Honestly, though, I think with Heisman voting, it's so fickle that you need everything we just said against Georgia, but you also, I think, need to be on, probably undefeated going into that game. I really do. Yeah, think I that. mean, if you get to 10-2, and 11-1, you're approaching 2,000 yards, you play well against Georgia, and you have a couple more games like Mississippi State, which, I mean, he, he did get like the at least the very temporary Benny Snell-Heisman talk after that game because he had those two just muscular late touchdowns. Um, if you do all that, I think he'll be taking, obviously it depends on the rest of the field, but I don't think there are so many clear cut potential Heisman finalists at the moment, especially since Bryce Love isn't even like Stanford's best offensive player this year. Um, people like, in coaching circles, if, if they win the next three games, people in coaching circles are going to go, damn, you know, Derek Mason and Will Muschamp and Mike Elko all knew what it took, like all knew how the yeah. Kentucky offense functioned and he still was successful. So a bunch of people in coaching circles will be all over it, but I just don't know how that translates to the national. No, league. I think it would. I think he ended up getting a lot of attention for that Mississippi state game. Uh, he just has to do that more. And like I said, even if they lose to Georgia play well, uh, it was, I, like I was really enjoying the Kentucky stuff on Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and then like some point yesterday, I had this vision of like we were talking about like, oh oh oh, uh, Bud Elliott wrote a piece about how, you know, despite the fact that Kentucky can't pass all that well, how they're generating such big plays and everything in the run game, um, and it really is a, a fun run game to watch. Um, then I, but then we were talking about like, well, at some point along the way, somebody's probably going to slow down Snell enough to make Terry Wilson have to beat them. And I don't think he's going to Terry Wilson has, has, I mean, he's completing 67% of his passes and that's great. Um, they're going nowhere. Um, they are 90th in passing efficiency right now, 77th in passing explosiveness. Um, so I, I, I don't, they're 95th in passing downs efficiency, which kind of hints at what's going on here. They're staying on schedule and they're brutalizing you. And if they, you know, if they don't score, they still punt. And then their defense, which is the actual strength of the team, um, takes over. So, like, that's a really nice recipe. It feels very SEC. But like you just said, over the next three games, they've got uh, Will Muschamp, Mike Elko, and Derek Mason. Um, I, I This feels like a situation where you could very, very easily get must-champed, especially if there's yeah. any sort of hangover from la- – because, I mean, like I wrote on Sunday, like the, it just seemed like a deliriously fun atmosphere Saturday night against Mississippi State. If there's like any sort of out, hangover in the crowd or the team or whatever, South Carolina could get them 16 to 14 or whatever. I'd like to point out they've beaten South Carolina four years in a row. Sure, and I hate those stats. And those are like trend stats. Like, you know, he's 17 and 10 in his last 27 games when kickoff is at 1 p.m. and it's sunny outside and blah, 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 blah. Like, no, no, no. I, I hate what I'm those saying stats. is, what I'm saying is they've beaten him four years in a row. This is a uh, a motivating factor for South Carolina oh, well, yeah, more so sure. than it is Kentucky. And all that talk, you know, where I'll get in those like kind of hedging stump for Will Muschamp, South Carolina era, where I'm like, they're good. They're going to be functionally like top 25 <laughs> good. You know, this is that game you win to start convincing people. And I think they've got it. Um, they're going to be aggressive. So yeah, right, I, I um, hate that, too, because I was enjoying Kentucky so much. And then suddenly I'm like, well, crap, they're going to lose this weekend, aren't they? Muschamp's going to make something miserable. Michael Penn actually wrote in, log- logged a question. And then because we're so backed up, changed his question. So we're going to go with the second question. Hope you're well. Can I change my question? Yes. How much more will it take before Tech fires Paul Johnson and who replaces him? If you'd rather not discuss this, I have an alternative. I was watching John Boyce's awesome 22, 222 to nothing pretty good video and got to thinking, what would a game like this do to S&P Plus? <laughs> uh, we can answer both of those real fast. Um, Garbage time would take over about eight minutes into the game. Yes. And um, Michael paid for this. 
I'm thinking really fast on how I'm going to answer this. I have content forthcoming as we get closer to, to this particular time of year when these conversations are had a little bit more open. Um, if Georgia Tech were to make a change in 2018 after the season, they would be in a better market than anyone realizes. Michael, thank you for your money. I'm going to have to kick this can down the road um, with the promise that there's content forthcoming that will better answer and contextualize the situation at Georgia Tech. Yeah, I um, I mean, I, I know I'm like the last living Paul Johnson supporter or whatever. Um, Dude, I grew up a Georgia you, Southern fan. I love Paul Johnson. I just think the writing's on the wall. Well, I know, but I mean, when we talk about these things, you say he's got to go, and I'm like, well, he's still doing pretty well, blah, 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 blah. Well, I didn't say he had to. I said, no, if they do. but in the past. I said, if you, they do. You have been speculating that this job's going to open for quite a while, is all I'm saying. But I'm, yes, I'm, just, I'm trying to I'm trying to categorize, categorize myself here. I'm just saying I'm usually the defender in this situation. Um, they outplayed South Florida in every possible way and figured <clears> out a way to lose. They uh, did. Then they, then they went to Pittsburgh and lost to what appears to be a bad team and mm-hmm. then they fumbled eight times against Clemson we're gonna have to um, talk about that Pittsburgh at some point because this I, yeah. I, I thought it was gonna be a swing back up yep. and the yep. Miami win last year and like I thought oh okay Narduzzi like they just had to figure the offense their out. defense nope. still stinks nope. yeah Pat Narduzzi's defense stinks yeah. every year we, that is that is a, a buried lead for um, a while. We got to talk about them. At some point. But but anyway, um, they've blown two games. They should have won. And uh, now you're looking at a situation. They'll beat Bowling Green. They'll you know Louisville. I guess they'll win. I I mean, we'll see. Uh, that should be an easy win, but it clearly is not uh, on paper anyway. Um, yeah. And then they're projected to beat North Carolina, but I'm pretty sure North Carolina is going to be improving in the coming weeks since they actually get their players back. They got some back last game, and they'll get some back uh, next week. Um, you got to win some games and you're looking at, you're staring at three and nine in the face and I cannot defend Paul Johnson at that point. Stay tuned. That's all I'm going to say. We got to hurry up. Derek Johnson. um, My question for you, what do you know about former Nebraska AD Sean Eichert's search to replace Bo Pelini in 2014? I think I'm Uh, saying uh, it's Eichert, right? Eichhorst? Okay, Eichhorst didn't use a search firm and supposedly had four to five serious candidates he considered, maybe even phone interviewed before he settled on Riley, the only candidate that got an in-person interview. How much better of a hire could he have made? Could you please give a... Sorry, enunciate, Stephen. Could you please give a specific example of the level of coach, a.k.a. a Rich Rodriguez success, a Matt Wells success who might have taken the Nebraska job besides Mike Riley. Thanks again. Yes, I'm a little angsty over Frost, no matter what Bill's numbers say. Uh, Derek, don't be angsty yet. It's too early. I'm going to put you in the Willie Taggart and Dan Mullen zone. Like, it's they sucked. There's a reason he got hired. Let them suck for a while because they're going to have to, you know? Right. This is worse than I expected and, yes. and whatever, but I've also, I also know that like the degree of the year zero doesn't matter. All that matters is if he has his pieces in place next year. Bill, I read this question when I was on the plane a couple of days ago, and I texted around. I actually did some work specifically to answer this question because at the time, I didn't have anybody there at Nebraska or anything, but I remember this coming up in conversation with a lot of people. And so I kind of I kicked some tires. Um. Nebraska fell into a trap for a long time and and is probably just getting out of this trap of expectation reality being so disproportionate. 
but also the interior management of the program being riddled with uh, entitled alumni, no outside thinking, no progressive vision for the future, no adjustment with the trends in college football, both in terms of like the football parts, the administrative parts, the fundraising parts, the national PR parts, all of those things, okay? It was a very Luddite atmosphere, and there was a sense of entitlement when they got to the Big Ten that, well, of course, we're going to be better than Wisconsin because we just do the Wisconsin thing. That's just, we just do that. But we're, we're better because we're Nebraska. Not really taking into effect that, like, whatever you want to say about Barry Alvarez as a puppet coach, he has a much, much better handle on how to do that within, within the realm of the Big Ten, and he's also been far more consistent in the modern era than Nebraska has been. So also, I kicked around, I asked some people, I was like, well, what do you remember about that? And in the course of that, I also found, this is from the Omaha paper, which I think is the News World Herald. I think I butchered that. Um, this was the I mean, list. World Herald. On, World Herald, World yeah. Herald, yeah. yeah. Uh, on December 1st of 2014, that was culled by the, the paper, both with sourcing and also with speculation. This was the big list. You ready? I'm just going to read them off in the order that they suggest them. The number one name is Scott Frost. At the time, he was 39. Okay, he was the OC at Oregon. Number two, Joe Moglia. Number three, Craig Bowl. Number four, Jim McElwain. Mark Rick. Jerry Kill. Willie Fritz. Rich Rod. Gary Patterson. Jim Mora. Greg Schiano. Pat Fitzgerald. David Shaw. Pat Narduzzi. Tom Herman. Kirby Smart. Jim Tressel. Justin Fuente. Chuck Martin. Uh, Chuck Martin at Miami of Ohio, by the way. That was the one that, that you may not know if you're listening. Uh, Mark Hudspeth, now, who at the time was at ULL. Uh, Mark Stoops, a group of people in Utah, just because Gary Anderson had come to Barry Alvarez at that point from Utah. So he mentions in one grouping, Whittingham and Mendenhall. <coughs> Paul Christ, which he was still, by the way, he had not gone to Wisconsin at this point, which is kind of funny. Um, and then the last one is Dave Doran. Now, this is a newspaper-assembled list, but here's what it shows you. Nebraska didn't even know what Nebraska wanted to be. Nebraska didn't know what kind of direction they wanted to head. They just knew, they just knew hey, we're Nebraska. The problem is they lost perspective on what that, act- that, what that valuation was in the open market because the, I couldn't think of a wider list. Now, newspapers do this all the time. And a lot of these names appear on this list purely in a speculative manner. I mean, Mark Richt, the entry is his yeah, family I, is I, from I, Omaha. Sure. He's a former Husker fan, and Georgia could benefit from a new start. Well, that was kind of foreboding. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, that last part. Yeah, I mean, so, but what you see here is you see Mark Richt next to Willie Fritz, next to Rich Rod, next to Gary Patterson. Like, it's funny, I, like, even then they doubted it. But, you know, Patterson probably won't leave TCU. And Jim Mora. So what you see is what you see, and the reason why I bring this up is it's indicative of what Nebraska's internal structure was like as well. Is they didn't really know, they didn't have a plan. They just knew that they were Nebraska. And the bottom line is this: Alabama has a plan. Uh, I'm trying to think of Georgia has a plan, right? Ohio State has a plan. I know those are all. I mean, Georgia's a great example, Bill. Yeah, Georgia's a better example than Alabama, I think. Actually. Because the, but yeah, no, Georgia's just, a very but good just example. Look at look at the difference in saying, "Hey, this is what we're going to achieve. We're going to set out to do this. We have the money to do." No, they, they they stood around for years in the state of Georgia, saying, "Well, we're Georgia. Why is this happening?" That doesn't. No one cares, man. Alabama was coming in and pillaging Atlanta for recruits and Clemson. 
And Clemson too. That was the one that, you know, it's kind of funny was we talked a lot about that when Kirby came over that they, you know, a lot of Georgia boosters were mad about the fact they were losing all these battles to Alabama in February so badly. But the one that the fans and the boosters and stuff talk about it was Clemson. It was the other SEC schools. It was, you know, getting picked off by Auburn and da 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 da. Nebraska needs to, and this is weird because Frost is homegrown, but they've got to start being, they've got to stop worrying about being Nebraska, whatever the hell that means. And I think, I think they made the right hire. I do. I really do. I heard, I heard so many good things about Frost when he was at UCF and the way he was doing things. And like, all, I totally stand by the hire. I don't, I'm just not paying attention to Nebraska right now because he's coming in and he's tearing, I mean, he's, I had my house renovated a couple of years ago. I didn't walk by the first three weeks of the renovation and go, Oh God, this is going to look like shit. You don't know. I, um, as you were talking, I was searching back through 2004 articles from when he was hired. I, it, it is amazing what a charm offensive will do. Um, because all these articles are about, you know, Icor's just nailed the unveiling and blah, yeah, blah, 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 blah. Like, yeah. well, congratulations. Uh, that, that's that's great. That earned you nine months of goodwill. But it, it was like because he was nice, everybody endorsed the hire. Like uh, this article from uh, Oregon Live where, you know, he had just left Oregon State. Like uh, Kirk Herbstreit, great hire. St- Stuart uh-huh. Mandel, Riley develops guys as well as anyone. Uh, Brock Heward, no one in college football I'd trust with more with my son. You'll hear that a few times. Uh, oh, Gottlieb, God, yeah. Doug Gottlieb, if you don't like Mike Riley, that is a you problem. Dennis Dodd, Mike Riley was always squeezing blood out of a tomato in Corvallis. More infrastructure at Nebraska. Love the hire. Sam Ponder, love that hire. Handful of coaches I'd want my kids to play or learn from. He's one of them. Joe Shad. Look, he really is nice. Though. He's very nice, uh, and it just totally distracted us from the fact that he'd been a bad coach for most of the last five years. So when I was texting the coaches, everybody has such a short-term memory, and they're all so busy. Everyone's uh, knee-jerk response was, well, they just hired an opposite of Bo Pelini on all right. the internal situations, and right. they didn't really think – they didn't even think about football. That's what one guy, one guy right. was like, it doesn't even seem like a football hire. It was no, just like, that's let's, exactly we had an asshole. We had a huge asshole. Let's just get it. Uh, let's get the total opposite of a huge asshole. And no and it, one was like, what is this football? What does this mean in a football context for the next five years? And I mean, I like um, I liked his offensive coordinator. I thought he was underrated. Like, I, I, I didn't hate Mike Riley. I just didn't understand how you could possibly look at him as like one of the top 30 guys Nebraska should hire. I felt like I was going crazy. Um, but, you know, and, and really, it, it really, we've talked about that a lot, obviously. It really did go back to hiring your ex, or the opposite of your ex. And, and it wasn't just, that's been Nebraska's problem for a while. You think, like, they, they got rid of Solich, and they thought, okay, enough of this old-school, rickety offense. Let's get a pro-style offense. Uh, Bill Callahan. Well, the pro-style offense didn't work out. Let's go hardcore college defense. Bo Pelini. Bo Pelini was angry, and I didn't like it. Let's hire a nice guy. And, like, you just... You never, it just felt like they never were stepping back and, and assessing like the entire coaching landscape and what would make the most sense for Nebraska. They were just basically saying, well, this didn't work. Let's try this instead. And it, that's how you limit. That's, we talked about Clay Helton a lot, like that, how, or, or LSU. I've mentioned LSU with Ordron, how they basically had a million candidates at their disposal and they focused on two. Um, it just feels like when you intentionally limit your options, it doesn't mean it can't work, but it certainly limits your, your margin for error. Um, we got to move along, but we could talk about that at length. We really could. And again, and yeah, have, Mike Riley is a super nice human being. Yeah, um, no, I, I have no doubt. 
Okay, this one isn't a question, but I actually corresponded with this guy over Twitter. Um, he paid for the question, but he just he wants me to do this for the rest of the season. I told him he'd get maybe an episode's worth, but yeah. since we're not really talking about this particular subject organically this week, I'll find a way to at least get it in for a couple weeks. Mason Moore is a Utah State. Utah State, baby. Yeah. He, he's paid money for me to refer to BYU as BYUP, BYU Provo, or BYU Provo Campus for the rest of the season. And I said I'd, I'd get it in where I could. Um, this is awesome, and I totally, like, this is a level of pettiness I'm going to completely encourage, especially in the name of charity. He literally just wants me to say, the next time we talk about BYU, that I have to say BYU Provo, because apparently this pisses off BYU fans. I would That's assume, it. Yes. That's all he wants. And he, and he donated money to a leukemia uh, I mean, I'll do it. Yeah, that's fine. I, it, it, by the way, uh, we corresponded with those Twitter people about that root beer T-shirt. I still want that from BYU. I like yes. BYU. The great I'm pretty sure. Guy. I'm pretty sure it's on its way. We're, in, um, we're good. But, but yeah, we're gonna we're gonna call them BYUP for a minute, I guess. Um, um, and by the way, uh, if if we're just kind of gonna lean into the pettiness for a second, we're currently in S and P plus Utah State is 42nd. BYUP is 59th. Okay. Uh, Patrick Kinworthy. All right, we got to go fast on this one, so I'm gonna put a time limit on you. I'd like to talk about. Uh, I'd like to talk about post game win expectancy. Mm-hmm. The question is too long for Twitter, and I'm not on Reddit. This question is mostly for Bill. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, he says sorry, Stephen, but I didn't see his email address online. I've often heard Bill say that if Team X had a post game win expectancy of 60 percent after its game against Team Y, then you would expect Team X to win a five game series. I disagree with that. Man, but- everybody wants to fight. I like it. All right, I don't well, think I don't think that post game win expectancy has any predictive use for two reasons. The post-game win expectancy calculations take key statistics and compare them to historical games to see how past games with similar numbers finished. Because the calculations depend on the specific stats for that game, they don't say anything about a different game that has different stats. <laughs> okay, would, okay, you, okay. Hang okay. on. I, I, let, me get, let me just get it all out. You would expect Team X to win three out of five. Only it is a literary five... device. Okay, uh, okay. If only five games had the same, exact same stats. Secondly, I believe that post-game win expectancy is agnostic of the teams in the game. If team A, team A and Team B play a game with the same stats as the XY game, then the win expectancy calculations would be the same. I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. You too, Steven. Am I way off base? Either way, keep up the great work. I do hope that you get a chance to produce shows that allow Bill to explain some of his favorite stats. <laughs> I also plan on buying one or more of Bill's books at some point. It is a literary device. That's it. I do, you know, we, that is one of the purposes of a lot of what I do is just that we, we treat one game as gospel in college football, but in no other sport. Uh, and so I do whatever I can to remind people that, that, you know, if this was a seven game playoff series, it could have played out differently. Yes, it is technically not the proper use because if they play again, it would have produced different stats, but it was just a reminder that sometimes the team that should have won didn't the end. Light them up. No, that was right. the, <laughs> He was Literary super nice. Device. Look, dude, he was super nice about He's it. He's super nice, and and so that's that. But that's that's the whole thing. It's again a charity drive. Pay to pay to get your questions answered. Half the people just want to screw with Bill. Um, Chris Cody, uh, he gave sixty bucks, and it was thirty nice. bucks for questions. So good for you. He tipped nine dollars to GoFundMe. I don't know if you have to do that or what, but it was sixty nine. So nice. Uh, look, it's one for me. Could the NCAA take away home games as a punishment for schools since TV bans are no longer feasible? Would the economic impact of the area be considered, or would it be seen as punishing the fan base and not the school? Thank you for your donation, Chris. This will never, ever, ever, no. ever, 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 ever happen. Um, I'm taking a sip of coffee. I'm not trying to be dramatic. No, uh, uh. 
Never. Um, here's why. Uh, they would go to court. Yeah. And they would win. I do believe that they would win. I believe this borders on um, this was possibly an antitrust violation. I was <laughs> looking at different. Um, I was looking at different probabilities during the Ole Miss investigation. When we were making the TV show about if they were if they could change their their model. Um, so here's the number one reason why this won't happen. All of the um, the damages and the punishments that they can hand out are predetermined by the NCAA when they go and vote every year in the off season. And the members vote on this. There's no way this would pass through the actual yeah. membership voting process. Flat so many, out. Also, so many, there, there's so much like reinforcement in the college football universe in terms of who's making the decisions and who has control over their own lives. Basically, it's crazy. And honestly, if the TV ban has been essentially nullified without them saying it because of the power the TV wields in a financial sense, the home game thing is the exact. It's the exact same situation. Now, what I assume you're talking about here, Chris, is not uh, Alabama. NCAA investigation. Let's <laughs> see if that's going to happen. Uh, shout out to Mark Emmert. Um, let's say Alabama's investigated in a bizarre world that isn't this one because that's not going to happen. Shout out to Mark Emmert again. I didn't. That's not an audio skip. I just said it twice. Um, they would have like a neutral site game, right? I think next year they open against Duke at the Chick Fil A game. <laughs> that's a neutral site, so maybe Chris is maybe Chris is suggesting a traditional home game model. So let's say that. Okay, do you then go and look like, let's say just hypothetically next week on the schedule, they play a Sunbelt team like Arkansas State or something in Tuscaloosa. What are you doing there? Are you saying you want to take that game and put it in Jonesboro or does the game not exist at all? Either way, the structure of the deal would change dramatically. The contract would be voided. And I think the the school in question that's being persecuted by the NCAA would refuse to honor the structure of the original agreement with the Arkansas State. So in other words, like Arkansas State gets like probably I think like one six, one seven to go to it maybe more than that now, maybe close to two million, uh, to go to Tuscaloosa, right? And that like makes up their that makes up a huge chunk of their athletic yeah. budget, right? right. Yeah. So what happens when you go to when you do when you do a structured deal like uh and, and Alabama is not a good example for this, but like when Miami goes to where do they go? Toledo? Yeah. Um you're not, you're getting a fee to come there or you you guys are settling on an overall structure of revenue sharing ticket sales whatever for like a two in one this would just mean that like arkansas state would have to pay alabama a lump sum and then they would rely on ticket sales and the rest and that's not feasible for either program so the logistics of these deals don't work if you did it in a conference game that would be the next example right let's say like a just a plain old south carolina vanderbilt and instead of being in one place it's in another um that one's probably the most possible, but again, I don't think it would happen. And when you would when you would have to determine this pretty far in advance. That's the only one I could think of that would work, and I would actually be okay with that if it wasn't the NCAA investigating people, which is just a dumb, corrupt agency anyway. <laughs> but I, I like the idea of like doing something, not paying players because players should be paid and all that yada yada but like if you if you screwed up and did something and then they were like all right you just we're now in 2019 you're automatically your first conference game we're flipping the home home so automatically whoever your first conference game is this year your home first home conference game is this year you it's now a road game that'd be right. kind of fun mm-hmm yeah, I, I mean, guess I what? Think, None of this shit's gonna happen. No, I, I know. Like over the last few years, I think the NCAA has come to realize, uh, like we all have, that you know the, the 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 typical ways of punishing programs don't punish the people who actually did anything wrong. Um, 
you know, you, you can't, it's, it's harder to specifically punish coaches and boosters without punishing fans and the players that come after them that had nothing to do with it. Um, and so, I mean, I think that's, I mean, it feels like we've seen a lot more use of show cause and, and things going down that road. Uh, and that's great. Uh, it also doesn't feel like enough. I don't think to most people because it isn't, you know, bull bands and, and blah, blah, blah. You, you can't, like witness them being punished for, for being bad, even though the players on the field probably weren't the ones being bad. Um, and so we we're in this period now where I think we're getting closer to, to figuring out how to punish the right people, but nobody's really satisfied with that either. Yeah. So, and, and, and the bottom line is it's, it's pretty unsatisfactory overall. Number one, we're still punishing, you know, people for helping to assure the kids get money. Um, and that's, kind of still gross and it feels grosser every single year, but, uh, no, it's just, it's hard to punish them. Uh, that would sort of do it, but not really. It would still punish the home fans who had nothing to do with it. And, uh, you know, not going to happen anyway. Okay. We have a, another segment for this show. So the handful of remaining questions will get answered on the next show, but we have a segment left. So we're going to dedicate the last, you know, 15 minutes to this. You ready? Let's do it. This is a good one. It's a variety platter. Brandon Brandon Ayers, uh, thanks for helping out a good cause. I'm sure the family is floored by the power of the PAPN community. I hope so, Brandon. I, I'm, I'm going to try and do some math um, and figure out how many of these we can tie in just to say, hey, PAPN was able to do this much money. Um, I think I think it's good for everybody to know that. I have a couple of ideas for my segment. Uh, he said, which can wait for the offseason. Look, man, we barely... As slow as we are, if you told us to do it in the offseason, we'd probably do it in the 2020 season. So um, I'll start with the most self-serving request. I love your interview series, and I especially like how you have targeted interviewees who, uh, whose opinions or outlooks you find personally interesting. Um, let's see. He wanted to uh, – oh, so he wants to know if we can interview him. Um, hmm. I'd be interested to see uh, if you can build a – um, I don't know, Brain. Give us a shout. We may do. We may bring on fans at another uh, some juncture in the uh, in the off season. I, I think we still owe a couple people from my Kickstarter from like two years ago. So sure. Oh, you need to do that. <laughs> I know, yeah. dude. Okay, so, so I, I so, don't feel like I can properly do another Kickstarter until I've righted my wrongs. Brandon has a bunch of things he suggested for the segment. We can do mini segments on each of them because I think some of them are pretty good. You ready? Okay. Number one, NCAA garbage. Is there a path that leads to an open market determining the value of college athletes? Yes, there is. Um, but I don't think anyone's going to allow those metrics in. Um, determining their value right now. Oh, an economist could do that probably in 30 minutes on a bar yeah. napkin. Yeah the, pro- yeah, the problem is every economist who's tried has come up with very, very different numbers. So there, it, it really does depend on like what, how you interpret 60 to two different factors. But no, you could still come up with something uh and you could this is no different than than labor unions and the nba and the nfl and major league baseball is that right, you need sure. representation on both sides they need to come they need to have a bargaining committee and come to an agreement that that i mean that's that's how revenue is determined in in the pro leagues so like what share of x is going to go to the player salaries so you would need a structure similar to that which pff, good luck um, if I were a school president, I'd be tempted to license out the entire athletics department. It makes sense to me to put the burden of compliance facilities and coaching salaries and buyouts on someone else while keeping a piece of the economic pie. 
It would have the added benefit of insulating the school and my job from scandal and ease the burden on tight purse strings. Possible? No, because the latter part of you think it's insulating the school and your job from scandal, you're still going to be liable 110%. Also, I think what an athletic director would tell you is that you're actually splintering your branding and that you would want to assume the identity of doing all those things for the good and then insulate for the bad. Um, Now, licensing out in terms of like, Compliance facilities and coaching salaries, a lot of that, not compliance, those are in-house employees. Facilities management, um, you know, I've got friends in this world, not so much facilities management, but all the licensing deals that go on with advertising and marketing, a lot of that already exists. You just sign the deal, usually individual schools uh, sign them or conferences sign them. Now, as far as going into facilities management and vending and things like that, most of that stuff already exists for the, I mean... If there's an economic model that better suggests you can save $20 million a year or $15 million or five or even two by going with a third party to do something like, you know, managing a stadium, they're going to do that. So it kind of already exists. Compliance is the one I'm always interested in of like, would you have some sort of autonomous body that just just assigns an individual to each Power 5 school as their compliance officer? So it's almost like someone you can't hire, you can't fire. And then I've thought about that before because that also came up during the the Ole Miss stuff. So, and I don't know if there's a particular right or wrong answer. All right, I'm just going to skip ahead, Bill. Um, what's the simplest change to the NCAA rules that would have the largest impact on the well-being of student athletes? Olympic model. Yeah, actually, because that's easier. Yeah. Um, how to help schools like mine? And he is a uh, Minnesota fan. <laughs> Uh, rank the following in terms of importance to football success. Feel free to distinguish between P5 and G5, but imagine the goal is consistent playoff contention. Now, keep in mind, he suggested all these as segments, so we're just running through them as fast as we can. Luck of your divisional draw, C, NC State, Indiana, Arkansas. <laughs> Geography, budget, recent program inertia, and academic rigor. Just kidding. I meant quality of coaching staff. <laughs> Frame the ranking by percentile. Your number one choice will be the best in the country. Number two will be 80th percentile, third, 60th, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so list them again, please. Luck of your divisional draw, geography, budget, recent program inertia, and quality of coaching staff. And in the context of someone like Minnesota, divisional draw has become a much bigger deal than it yeah. used to be. Yeah, uh, but it's still, I don't think, it, it, as big as budget. Budget. Budget's I mean, number one. Budget's number at, one to me. Geography's number two because of recruiting. Budget geography, yeah, we're in lockstep here. Okay. Uh, program inertia, I wouldn't worry about at all. No, because, uh, I mean, in staff, theory, a coaching staff would be able to take care of the inertia. Quality of coaching staff is really going to, at this point in 2018, it's a it, it's basically a subheader under budget. Um, and then luck of divisional yeah. draw. Luck of divisional draw, to me, matters really only in two factors. Are you are you competing for a national championship and right. road to the playoff, or or are you Indiana? And you're just worried right. about getting the seven to five. Yeah, when we talk about teams that have gotten screwed by division setups, we're talking about NC State and Indiana who have not competed for a national title. Um, their their problem is getting to be, their ceiling is more like nine wins instead of ten or eleven because of their division. They're not getting to twelve either way. Right, um, so, if that makes sense. Um, budget one because if you take Texas A and M and you yeah. do the blind item thing and you look at how much money they've spent uh, location all that's like if you just if you just looked at Texas A and M and didn't really know it was Texas A and M you would you'd be confused probably at the actual records and success on the field but budget is something that allows them to re-enter the conversation I, I look I'm of the opinion that Texas A and M is only a school that we talk about because they're rich it's not because of their football 
Honestly, I mean, they've been, they've now, been a good program. They've just never been as good as their money. That's what I'm saying. But we talk about Texas A&M alongside programs that win national titles, and Texas A&M hasn't won their division since they came to the SEC. I mean, it is funny though. We're talking about budget and geography being the top two things. Well, we we just basically explain why Texas A&M has higher expectations than they've been able to live up to. Right, but yeah. then you start looking. You you have to analyze. I mean, this turns into a Texas A&M question of like, what? So what, where's the disconnect? Right. Um, how much money would it take to turn a mid to lower tier P5 team into a consistent power? I think Oregon's sudden fall from national relevance, even though it might be brief, might have a lot of potential, uh, might ha- must have a lot of potential, quote, new money schools worried about their prospects. I've run the well, numbers and it looks like a $4 billion endowment at a 5% annual draw would be enough to satisfy Title IX and keep the football program up with the Joneses and Savings. Thoughts? Oof. Careful about how you look at endowment because yeah. Florida State has one of the smallest endowments in the country. Because of their history, right? Um, because they were a small women's teaching school for decades and decades and decades, and they weren't able to flip that into you know your grandfather's age donors who have businesses and leave you know millions of dollars. So, um, endowment is a good way to look at a health of a university. I don't know if it's a great way to look specifically towards successful football, but um, mid to low tier P five team. Again, let's just look at about let's let's think about Minnesota because that's where he's coming from. I'd say a boost of forty five to sixty on top of what you're already getting in revenue sharing, at minimum. So, all right. So, I know the USA Today finance numbers are shaky, (laughs) but it's kind of like it's the they're the only ones that are available. So we yeah, and we're we're not trying to shit on USA Today. I mean, I know people always tell me, "Well, that's not right," but like USA Today at least attempts to do it right. Um, but basically, like the top five last year um, for 2016 17, uh, the top five in total revenue were uh, Texas at 214 million, uh, AM at 211 million, Ohio State at 185 million, Michigan at 185 million, uh, Alabama at 174 million. Clemson, who just won a national title, was uh, at only 112 million. That's, uh, that's overall. Um, you know, they've, they've mostly stunk at basketball through the years, so they're not making just a ton from that or anything. But they at least huh, – actually, this is um, – I just stumbled into a point that I wasn't expecting to make. Clemson was number 26 on this list at 112.6 million. Minnesota was 25th on the list at 116.4. Um, oh, so really? That doesn't help because that is overall. Minnesota probably has – I don't have the Learfield Cup standings memorized or anything, but I would bet that Minnesota probably finishes better in that overall. They have a healthier overall athletic department. Pure guesswork on my part. Next time you talk, I'll look that up. Um, Good hockey. But um, so that kind of wrecks the point that I was trying to make, but like – you're still at $116 The top, The number 10 is at $147. Uh, So you would probably – what what was the number you threw out there? Oh, which one? You said you'd probably need an, at least another X million dollars. Uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 60. Okay, yeah. So to, to create a dramatic change. In terms of overall athletic department revenue, they would Minnesota would need to rise by $31 million to get into the top 10. And the top 10, again, Texas, Texas that's A&M, so Ohio State, Michigan, Alabama, Georgia, Oklahoma, Florida, LSU, Auburn. That's, and guess that's what all those things have in common? Football. Warm weather. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, Minnesota. No, 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 Ohio State of Michigan. Ohio State of Michigan. Yeah, but those are national brands that, that just sure. completely, completely defy geography. And there's only like five of those. Notre Dame, Michigan, Ohio State, um, 
used to say Nebraska, we don't anymore, um, that completely defy any Penn State is getting there, I think, that you just don't worry about the weather. It's not something you can recruit against because the brand is so good. Um, so I arbitrarily said 40. But that makes me feel better, Bill. Um, I think that what you'd have to do, you you have to look at Oregon more as a blueprint than you may. I don't know if you want to or whatever. So I find it interesting that PJ Fleck wanted to go to Oregon. Um, you have to organize. You have to or- organize. You have to find a thing that's distinguishing. And you don't have a Phil Knight. So you hire a guy like PJ. That's why I like the hire. Yep. Now, I don't know if it translates into 10 wins or whatever, but you, you have to find someone. You always have to zag, no matter how much money you have. And I do think you need to change your branding and marketing up. I, I think you have to get cool or unique in a way that is going to draw attention in recruiting. And they haven't done that yet, at least on a national level. Okay? Uh, all right, we got to plow through the rest of these for him. Yeah. Teleportation. Would the impact of the ease of travel be enough to offset the economic disaster to real estate markets, airlines, and hospitality industry? Is he just asking like an economics question, or is this about college football? Uh, it appears to just be a question. Like Teleportation that. would be amazing. Don't, I'm not going to do it. <sighs> Hawaii would become a national champion. That's true. Flat out. Um, if by the I way, Minnesota. Pl- by the way, Minnesota, twenty second in Learfield Cup standings. If I'm looking at the right ones, nailed uh, it. Clemson, fifty fifth. If I were a public figure, head ball coach at Ohio State, Michigan, Baylor, da, 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 and was actually concerned with stopping bad things from happening to vulnerable people, uh, I'd be tempted to hire an investigative reporter to investigate me and my program. Yeah. An agreement to only bring information to me in exchange for an exclusive, no holds barred tell tell all some years down the road. Crazy like a fox, or just plain old crazy? Um, about halfway. I think you're you're halfway crazy like a fox. You're not plain old crazy. Um, this is done more than you realize. Yeah. There, um, it's funny. I let me. I just say this as an aside. I think I've talked about this on the show before. My dad is a um, retired uh, special agent for the FBI. When he retired. Um, he wasn't much interested in going back into like federal level work. And I think he, he just, oh, my dad wants to fish and be left alone. But uh, there is a, a wealth of opportunities for investigators. Um, there's some of this exists now. They're starting to pull more from the journalism world of people that literally go around and do that for different organizations in sports. Um, it's done to a degree by which would unsettle you about the NFL. <laughs> Um, honestly, it was something that he had talked to some people about and, and schools in the sec are starting to do this as well, where you are essentially policing your own people nonstop and then routing that information to superiors. Sounds creepy, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. It's not uncommon now. However, the, the one I will say this, the thing about, uh, uh, I'd be tempted to hire an investigative reporter to investigate me with the agreement of a no holds barred tell all. Okay, well, some years down the road, none of that's going to happen because if you hire somebody, our so our ethics are already shot there. I'm not saying like I'm not trying to cast aspersions, or I'm just saying like once you hire me and you pay me, I'm not a reporter anymore. I'm just an employee, so you wouldn't have to trade anything. You just say, well, I'm paying you. <clears throat> and, and you know, that's fine. If people were like, hey, I'm paying you to investigate. Now, here's the thing. If you're paying me and you want results, I don't have to do some of the things I have to do if I'm just investigating you for SB Nation. I don't have to be cloak and dagger. I don't have to file FOIA. I don't have, like, I have access to that. So if Urban Meyer hires me, I'm not going to be like, hey, I'm going to investigate you. You'll never know it. I'll be like, give me your phone. I want to, you know, I want <laughs> Right entire- now, right now, right now. Don't take it home yeah, first. Don't yeah. touch it. Uh, I want the entire email index for the athletic department. Like, I want all this right now. And then that's why you don't you don't really need to hire a journalist per se. You just hire an actual investigator. And they're just constantly doing this. 
Yeah, I mean, it's basically like an ombudsman for an athletic program, sort of like the public editor, yeah, just without just without the public part of it. Right. Um, exactly. Uh, hang on, I'm jumping around to finish this guy up. Uh, what makes Bill love the NFL so much? <clears throat> I mean, why does everybody do that Jerks. to you? I'm the Jerks. one. I'm literally the one who's who talks about the NFL from a fan's perspective at least once a week. I don't have a team, so I unfortunately do. It's like having AIDS um, or cancer or something horrible. Um, does he remember collegiate clock rules or is he more like the hometown hero who publishes a book, an Excel spreadsheet, never to return home? Was this part of the settlement that landed us Herm Edwards? When, when does his first mock draft go live? There has been... I, I appreciate... Look, our fan base is highly educated. Our fan base is great. There are some people who are pissed off about like the two and a half NFL segments we've done. Well, and like Jesus. I, I want to test their um, <clears throat> their stick-to-itiveness. Like every single time I publish, like on like Thursday, Friday, after I've kind of done my college thing, I'll publish a couple of college, uh, pro pieces, and that'll be the case this week too. Uh, and I'm I'm just curious if people can keep it up because every single time there has been a what is this or wow. uh, NFL writer it ha- it is funny. Like I knew there would be I don't know if pushback is quite the right term, but um, the the response to not only to me acknowledging the NFL and writing about it a little bit, but basically trying to say what I have found statistically in that that sports are so much more similar than we think. Like the the responses have basically been that Tracy Morgan gif that's on Twitter all the time. Nope, 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 nope. Like we can't. The branding has been so strong in both directions that we can't acknowledge it. Mm. Uh, and, and it's just amazing. The only thing is different is that the NFL has bigger, pl- stronger, faster players. They cancel each other out. They make stupid plays just the same. They commit penalties just the same. Like every single damn good kick return or punt return this season in the NFL has been called back to an illegal block. Like it's like the same mistake levels, the same, almost the same big play levels, almost the same efficiency levels. It really is similar, but uh, you have to get past the branding to, to, to see that. And that's something that uh, most people are not willing to do. And I wasn't willing to do till about nine months ago. So. It's still football. Calm down. We're not going anywhere. I've told you this a thousand times. It's all football, and it's going to make you a better college football fan. Just trust us. Bill, we're out of time on this episode uh, because we're recording back-to-back right now. we got a ton of stuff going on, but we will wrap up the remaining charity questions. And Again, thank you all so much for your generosity. We will be back with the tasting menu for week five, and we will be back with uh, hopefully a regular schedule because I am not getting on an airplane in the next 10 days. Thank Thank God. God.